ladies and gentlemen. Welcome back to the ASIAL Security Insider podcast. And our special guest today is Melissa Harries, a registered psychologist and founder of Mindset Psychology. Melissa has a special interest in workplace psychology, trauma and resilience and has done some work with ASIAL talking about issues that challenge the security industry. Melissa, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me. It's our pleasure. Now, perhaps you can tell us a little bit about your organisation, Mindset Psychology, and, and how that sort of dovetails into some pertinent issues that are affecting, or uh, on a continuing basis, people working in security. Mm. So, um, Mindset Psychology is just a, a small consulting business um, where we're often called in by workplaces to support the well-being of employees. Um, which could look like um, after an event happens, like a critical incident, going on site, providing support. Um, but it's also proactive uh, mental health support, um, helping to address the psychological hazards of the workplace um, and training leaders on how to support well-being and mental illness in their staff. Um, my, I'm also the co-owner of Mindset Securities, which is a, a small security company that my partner owns. And runs and uh, through doing selection for him and just um, supporting his business, I've just really noticed a, a real lack of support for security officers. Even though there's quite a high level of exposure to trauma, mm. um, and so what what I've been looking at recently is about how we can improve the mental health of the workforce in security. Um, improve the mental health literacy of workers as well as leaders so that people are healthier and happier in how they go about their work. Well, look, this is a, a really interesting discussion, an interesting topic, and one that we could, you know, it's a rabbit hole that we could probably go down for the next five hours because mm. the reality is if you compare security to most other frontline response organisations, whether it be ambulance officers, police officers, uh, government agencies, even military they have selection processes set up that are designed mm. that are designed to some extent to screen for things like um, people being prone to post-traumatic stress disorder, uh, people lacking in resilience, and those sorts of things. And I say to some extent because they're not the kinds of things that you can actually effectively screen for. You can inoculate against to some degree, and you can get some precursor indicators of how well someone's going to deal with that but the security industry has none of that we take people we put them through a cert two course we throw them on the job and then we cross our eyes and cross our fingers and cross our toes and hope that everything's okay um, so from a psychological perspective what are some of the pitfalls that we're we're facing there well, <laughs> big yeah. question. Yeah. Um, you know, and I, I think you um, hit the nail on the head with some of the differences, you know, between, you know, the emergency services and defence um, with similar rates of exposure to trauma mm. um, as what security officers face. Um, and when you look at the data for security, um, that they face just as much occupational violence as police. Yep. Um that they're twice as likely to receive a head injury at work as a police officer would. Like, so there's there's actually some differences that say that police uh, security are more at risk in their jobs. Yeah. Um. And and as you say, that um, kind of those who are quite vulnerable to that kind of trauma have not been screened out like they have with police. Um. And plus, you look at the training. You know, you use the word stress inoculation, which is such a great term. 
you know, your two-week security course is not going to give that kind of stress inoculation. And so it really speaks to the need for businesses to undergo professional development across the security officer's career, you know, and to think about um, the life cycle of their people um, because I, I feel that it, the training is a big part of what security officers are missing versus defence or police, you know, and how do you uh, manage risk in a safe way? And when we're looking at who's going to develop post-traumatic stress disorder, a person who doesn't feel competent in what they're doing is at risk. Yeah. And competence is something that businesses can work on. And that's a, that's a really important part of, of this whole equation because the, the entire security training system at the moment is predicated upon what they call competency-based training. Uh, and I'm sure you would agree that the, the, the biggest challenge that you have there is that someone may be competent on the day in the classroom at that moment with an instructor. But that doesn't necessarily mean that they're going to be competent two weeks from then or two years from then in a completely different, uncontrolled environment with a whole heap of external stimuli and out-of-control factors going on. So Mm. how do we deal with that as an industry? Well, it would be nice to shift the culture away from um, your security qualification qualifies you for the job that you're doing. I think there needs to be uh, more work done in risk assessment Mm. and matching the actual on-the-job capability of the personnel to the risk that they're they're facing at work. Um, In New South Wales, I I think that the the basic licence, the 1AC, seen as a a plug-and-play, but you've got different risk requirements of different roles. And so I'd like to see better matching over of those capabilities. Yep. Um, Because, I mean, even you look at what might be considered a simple role, you know, that you've got a security guard at a shopping centre. Yep. But the the complexity in that kind of role of um, providing good customer service to start with, Yep. You know, that I see a lot of um, customer aggression related to uh, poor communication skills yep. um, or not modelling the behaviours. You know, I've got a pet peeve with a, <laughs> a shopping centre down the road where people smoke out the front and the security officer will also smoke out the front with them oh, right under the no smoking sign and you go, well you've lost a bit of credibility in, in being able to police in that area. Yeah. Um, and some of the exposure to trauma that comes from working in shopping centres, you know, it's actually quite a complex role. And um, I think if you want to have um, your average security officer off the street who's done the two-week course be put into those roles and to do it well, that they need ongoing training and to consider that the basic security qualification is the start of um, of training and education. It's not the end of it. Yeah. There's, there's a lot of companies who might be listening to this that would possibly have the view of, well, look, there's not a lot that I can do about the training because I'm picking people up post their certification. They've gone out, they've done their level two, they've applied for a license, and now they're coming to me for a job. So that ship has kind of sailed. But there is a lot that I believe companies can do post-incident 
Um, and this mm-hmm. is something that often we see with police and ambulance officers and all the rest of it, where there's a major incident or even just a, an incident where they're given access to support and services that the average security person wouldn't ever get access to. How important mm. is that post-incident support? Oh, it's, it's absolutely critical. Um, and it, it starts with non-mental health professionals, to be honest. So I think the most important role when it comes to supporting staff with a critical incident is actually leadership. Uh, and it's the frontline manager who um, provides a psychological first aid, you know, who checks in with that guy and says, are you okay? How did you go? What do you need? Let's manage your your workload over the next few days. Do you want to come in? Do you need time with family? You know, to have that supportive uh, well-being conversation with that person, first and foremost, I think is critical. And then to be able to step up and step down, the care is required. Because yeah. you'll have some people who'll go, you know what, like, shit happens. Yeah. <laughs> um, and that... I. I'm not impacted by that, yeah. um, whereas other people will have quite a large response maybe because they've never seen anything like that or they've had similar incidents in the past. And so knowing which resources to mobilise in those situations. Um, and, I mean, you look at police and ambulance, you know, who've got their employee assistance program providers who've got set deadlines and timeframes around that response. You know, someone on site within three hours They've got a, a phone call 24 hours after, face-to-face one week after. You know, they've got a structure around what that support looks like. Yeah. Um, and your average security company, I'm not sure, has a policy around it, let alone a structure for how they, they manage that impact to well-being. Yep. And how how important in this equation are the co-workers, the people around the people on the ground? Because, you know, if I'm working with Billy Bob, who's a security guard, and he's one of my mates, I'm probably going to be one of the first people to be aware that something is wrong. How important yeah. is it for me to be able to be trained in and given permission to say to my co-workers, are you okay? Mm. Yeah, I... I think it's um, a really important competency that you can train people in um, and it's something that Mindset Securities is delivering at the moment is mental health first aid training mm. for security officers to be able to recognise what some of those warning signs are and to have an are you okay conversation. Yep. Um, you know, and because we're looking at a male-dominated industry as well, you know, we've got an extra complexity around people you know, feeling a stigma to talking about being impacted by these events. Yeah. Um, and one of the great things of having so many ex-police, ex-fireys, ex-paramedics and ex-defence in security is that those guys have all gone through mandatory mental health screening and, you know, their mental health literacy tends to be a little bit better yep. um, and they're a little bit more open to keeping their mates safe. You know, so the more that we can build a bit of cohesion, you know, and a team environment within um, security operators, I think that's going to have a positive impact on mental health. Yeah. Being a a largely male-dominated environment, and especially in Australian culture, we're terrible for this. We have this mentality of, you know, dobbing. So are there strategies that you can sort of think about or maybe to suggest to company owners to help their their employees get over this issue of 
if someone tells me they're not okay or they're not doing well, by bringing that up with my my immediate supervisor or whatever, I'm not actually dobbing. What I'm doing is I'm yeah. actually looking out for my mate and helping him or her. Yeah. So I think you hit on a um, an idea where we've got a, a bit of a difference between a stigma, like a perception that I'll be judged for having a mental health condition versus a barrier. My career is going to be impacted by having a mental health condition. Yep. Um, so I think um, businesses have got to do a lot of work in that space to promote mental health, to promote what good mental health looks like. Um, and what are the support mechanisms if someone's suffering from poor mental health? And if that includes um, paid counselling, then fabulous. But if it's referral, um, kind of we know this GP is really good, we like this private psychologist, then that's great. But I think there's a real case for marketing um, the support resources um, to try and reduce this barrier to help seeking. And so that if someone's like dobbing in inverted commas, you know, that it's seen as I'm trying to assist you rather than this is risking my job. Yeah. Okay. So it's really about getting people to understand that, you know, it, it, this isn't sort of, you know, a, a, pu- a punitive thing. This is really just about trying to help you, you know, building a culture of making sure that we're all okay. That's it, yep. Um, because I think there's still a, a real misunderstanding that if you have a mental illness that you'll get fired if work knows about it. Yep. Um, when really it tends to build resilience because you engage with that professional support and you learn coping skills. Yep. Um, things that we don't necessarily automatic automatically learn in the course of our lifetime. And when you think of as an adult, where do you learn skills to regulate your emotions? Well, <laughs> kind of counselling is one option. Yeah. Um, and if a workplace runs resilience training, that's another option. Yeah. Um, but what we tend to learn from our mates, you know, is just drink or just avoid yeah. it, just don't think about it. And so we, we end up as adults with a very limited variety of coping skills. You know, so if we can see counselling as an opportunity for one-on-one skills training, you know, I think that also helps to reduce a bit of that stigma. Yeah, well, it's interesting because I'm sure everyone listening to this is familiar with the the term post-traumatic stress or, Mm. you know, beyond that post-traumatic stress disorder. But the interesting part of that puzzle that no one ever discusses or you very rarely hear being discussed is post-traumatic growth. In other Mm. words, you know, there's opportunity to grow and become more resilient and stronger out the other side of these events. It doesn't just have to all be negative, bad, you know, terrible things have happened. Sure, it may not be great while it's going on, but how do you use it to help you become a more resilient person? Yeah, that's it. Mm. Um, and when we look at the stats, I mean, 90% of people who experience a traumatic event recover very well or, or are not significantly impacted by it. So we've got 10% who are, and of that 10%, half of them will naturally resolve without intervention. Yeah. So post-traumatic stress disorder is actually a um, the exception to the rule yeah. when you look at the stats. It's just uh, the risk goes up with each consecutive trauma 
Mm. So, you know, if you've attended that shopping centre where a person leapt from the fifth floor to the ground um, and then you're working in a pub in a couple of nights' time, someone gets stabbed, you know, so like having consecutive traumatic events in a short period of time tends to increase the risk dramatically. But even, even then, you know, it's still an opportunity to learn coping skills to to make people less vulnerable next time it happens. Absolutely. I mean, I've always thought of it from the point of view of anyone who starts in the security industry, but this is true of anyone in life, really. Anyone who starts in the security industry has two jars. You have your resilience jar and your experience jar. And when you Mm -hmm. first start in the security industry, your resilience jar is full. Everyone's is a different size, but your resilience jar is full and your experience jar is empty. And every Mm -hmm. time something happens to you, you take a coin out of the resilience jar and you put it in the experience jar. And eventually, depending on the size of your resilience jar, you're going to get to a point where your resilience jar is empty. Your experience jar is full, but your resilience jar is empty. And if you don't talk to someone about it before you get to that point, it can be a Mm. real challenge. Mm. So what can, what can security companies do to help, help improve the mental health of their staff? So first and foremost, um, I would like to hear leaders within companies talk about their own lived experience of mental illness um, with a specific purpose. One is you say, I suffered and I got help and I got better and I didn't get fired. Yep. You know, so it starts to address some of the barriers to help-seeking. Yep. Um, I think that there's a strong case to to look from a systems perspective. What are those things that are contributing to the poor mental health of the staff? So um, I keep using shopping centres as, as an example, but it's just such a rich environment <laughs> from yep. a psychological perspective. But if you've got customer aggression, you know, what what's happening that can reduce the incidence of that customer aggression? You know, are there specific systems that are contributing to that or is it a skill set within the guard that training would assist with? So, I mean, first and foremost, there's got to be a consideration of what are the psychological hazards that are impacting on my staff Mm -hmm. and what can I do to reduce them? And it's just like with the WHS legislation, you know, that there are hazards in the workplace doesn't mean you ignore them or you just accept that they are what they are. You've got to look at control measures. You've got to reduce them where possible, and you've got to mitigate them where you can't reduce them. So looking at those psychological hazards is important. Yep. Um, Good leadership. (laughs) I mean, I've mentioned it in a couple of ways, but um, what the research says is that knowledge about mental health isn't nearly as important as a preparedness to talk to people about mental health. Yep. And it, you, you don't have to fix people's problems, but it's really a coaching conversation. It's, a, it's having a chat about how things are going, what's working, what's not working, what could you do differently? You know, and so that could be a performance-based coaching discussion. It could be a well-being-based coaching discussion. Yep. And so having that preparedness to say, mate, you know, I noticed that in that conversation, you look like you phased out and that's not like you. You know, is everything okay? You know, being able to have the confidence to start that conversation is quite important. Yeah. So, it, the, oh, sorry, go ahead. No, no, go on. Well, just to, to kind of um, wrap that out, so we've got to prevent 
issues, you know, address those psychological hazards. We've got to encourage help seeking, which leaders are the centre of gravity. But then I think there's also an obligation to provide um, support for that help seeking when it's an occupational um, cause. And so um, having an employee assistance program provider is an easy way to do that. Um, the other option is that um, I was just on site with Fire and Rescue a couple of weeks ago and they've got a wellbeing coordinator. If you see a private psychologist, you take your receipts to the wellbeing coordinator and they pay the difference between the gap and the Medicare rebate. Yep. You know, so it's quite a low-cost, um, low-administrative burden way of, of supporting help-seeking. That's a really good idea. Mm. Yeah. So... I mean, we, we talk about the role of leadership in managing mental health, but it's it's a bigger puzzle than just leadership. You mentioned yep. earlier in the podcast professional development. How does that play into this and why is that so important? So from um, a couple of different perspectives, one is um, you use the word stress inoculation. Yep. <laughs> um, you know, and it's about um, learning confidence and competence in increasingly complex and challenging environments. Um, and so if someone um, has that exposure to stress in a safe training environment and that situation pops up in real life, you know, a person's confidence in their ability to cope with it um, is much, much higher. They're able to manage the stress within that situation much better. Um, and so those two things are quite protective when it comes to mental health. Yep. So your competence, your, your confidence in your skill sets that you used in the traumatic event, um, but just the um, being able to regulate that acute stress response. The yep. lower your heart rate, the better people cope with trauma. Yeah. <laughs> like a very simple relationship there. So, I mean, the professional development works on both of those aspects. Yep. But I guess companies need to be aware too that you've got to be super careful about who you get to do this because – there is a gradual process involved in ramping people up from zero to 10. And I yeah. say that because we, when we used to run security training about a billion years ago, um, we would take people through a scenario where uh, it was a, a witness scenario where there's an armed robbery in a bank. So someone runs mm. in, you have to try and memorize everything that's going on so that you can put it into your report later on. And we would have people yeah. burst into the classroom wearing balaclavas with fake firearms and scream at everyone and have them get on the ground. And we only did that a couple of times before we realized that some people had a really really bad reaction to that, <laughs> even though it was only a scenario. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, defence were um, charged a couple of years ago. One of the drivers for ADFA, mm. you know, took the um, ADFA students out to a scenario where he knew that there was, there was a training scenario going on, but people were pretending to be corpses. Yeah. Um, and it triggered his PTSD from... Um, from combat in another country, yeah, you know. So, I mean, they use the word graduated. Yeah, <laughs> you know that it's got to be a gradual approximation. And to be honest, it, it does take time. And I, I guess my encouragement for security companies is just if it sounds too good to be true, it probably is. Yeah, you know. And um, but there's also transferable skills. So if we're looking at uh, stress inoculation, increasing people's ability to tolerate and regulate high stress. 
mm. then that that's a skill set that's going to um, be versatile in different environments. You know, so yeah, you don't have to do every every little competency to to learn that one overarching skill set. Yeah, absolutely. So just in summary, to go through some of the things that we've discussed so that people sort of can take these away and have a bit of a think about them, um, you know, it, it's really important, and jump in at any time to sort of correct me if I'm wrong here, but it's really important to develop a culture within your organisation of staff members being able to sort of say to each other, hey, listen, are you okay? And then from a leadership perspective, help staff understand that if there is a problem, it's not dobbing. It's about helping your co-workers. Just like if you knew someone fell down on the job and broke their leg and they were walking around with a broken leg, you'd want someone to know, well, mental injuries are absolutely no different. Same thing, yeah? Absolutely. Yeah, yeah same thing, Yeah. Have leaders in the security company talk about their experience and how they've managed to survive it where possible so that people can understand this is not a life sentence. You can move on. You can grow beyond it. You can be okay afterwards. Talk, mm. talk to staff about the sorts of psychological hazards or things that may be psychological hazards in their role and how you could potentially work around them and, and try and mitigate them, understanding that we do work in an environment where there's going to be challenges and there's going to be aggression, but that doesn't mean that we have to just accept that what is is is. Sometimes there's a better way of dealing with it. Um, and, you know, great leadership. Make sure that people understand from a leadership point of view that that psychological injuries, like we just mentioned then, are are normal. You know, people get colds, people get broken bones, people get scrapes and bruises, people get psychological scars, and you need to just deal with them. Is that correct? Absolutely. And the metaphor I often use is it's like working in the sun. You know, if we just use exposure to occupational violence, you know, it's like working in the sun. Yeah. Um, that if you get sunburnt, we're not going to say that you're weak. <laughs> yeah. You know, it's just, it's one of the occupational risks. But all because we know it's part of the job doesn't mean that we send you out into the sun, you know, in the midday heat. You know, we want to give people the right protective equipment um, and, you know, the right job design to make it as safe as possible for everyone concerned. Yep, absolutely. And that's a really good analogy. And finally, professional development, you know, where possible the importance of that, that stress inoculation through realistic or hyper-realistic scenario training where you can because it's like anything the, when you're a baby you didn't know how to sh tie your shoelaces until someone showed you how to tie your shoelaces and then you went oh okay I get it if you've never dealt with a serious injury if you've never dealt with you know anti-social violence or even worse asocial violence um, mm. then, then how are you meant to know how to deal with that that's it yeah well look Melissa, um, and so sorry go on Oh, just so perhaps part of that when we're thinking of organizational culture is really about mentoring your people, you yeah. know, thinking about it as a lifelong apprenticeship and that we're, we've got an obligation to each other to, to mentor and coach so that even if there's not formal professional development opportunities, that people grow in their skill set through, through people who are senior and skilled in the business taking the time to educate them. Absolutely, and I think there's a lot of really good employers out there in this industry who understand that guards aren't just disposable commodities. They're people and they're an investment in the future of their organisation. And if you look after mm. them and if you invest in them, they will pay dividends. Yeah. Yeah. 
Fantastic. Look well, after your staff and they'll look after you. Absolutely. Um, thank you very much for your time. If people want to find out more about you and the sorts of things that you're doing and the training that you're providing, where do they go? If they head to mindset-psychology.net uh, and I've got some information about the different types of professional development that we deliver yep. um, in collaboration with Mindset Security. So that was mindset-psychology.net. Fantastic. All right. Well, Melissa, thanks once again for your time. Ladies and gentlemen, it has been a pleasure sharing the, uh, the half hour with you again. If you would like to know more about the ASIO podcast, you can visit the site. There are more podcasts like this one in the series. You can download them from iTunes, Blurberry, Spotify, Google Play, and all of the other fantastic places that you find podcasts. And once again, we look forward to joining you on the next podcast. <laughs>